Well, welcome again. We are starting our series, our Christmas series on the gifts of Christmas. This morning we're going to talk about several of the gifts of the Bible, several of the gifts that God gives to us that came around Christmas time or that were announced around Christmas time. If we look in the Bible, we're all familiar with the story of the wise men coming from the east and bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just as they brought gifts as a symbol of the divinity and the majesty of Christ, we too are going to talk about the gifts that we receive because we are believers in Christ and because we are a part of his kingdom and we are a part of the majesty because we are united with God. So this morning we're going to be starting the gifts of Christmas. It's our new series, The Gifts of Christmas. We're going to work through this series. It's going to be a three-week series on what God has done and specifically some of the things, some of the gifts that he gives us because of sending his son, Jesus, into, into the world. Now, let me just mention this as a side note that um, when we talk about this, these are not the only gifts that God gives. The three gifts we're going to mention, they're not the only three. I just picked three because, top three, because we have... Well, three weeks before Christmas, and so I'm just picking the top three for expediency. However, they are the ones that are prob- probably most referenced in the Bible around Christmas time, and so we're going to look at those three, starting with our strategy, which is today we're going to look at the gift of peace. It's a very simple message. The, the Christmas one, I decided I was going to make it simple also, so that when we get to January, can rock, or at least roll a little bit onward in our vision and ministry and things like that. So gift of peace, let's look at what the Bible has to say. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, it'll be up on the Jumbotron, or you can open up your iPhone or your iPad or your Samsung Galaxy or whatever it may be that you have that's large and has lots of pixels on the front of it um, that you can access the Bible with online. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 14, if you want to open up there and keep your fingers there, we're going to be looking at a one, one statement in the Bible pretty specifically here this morning. We're going to be looking at what the angels, the pronouncement of the angels, what the angels said. We're going to look at that very specifically. Uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, but we're going to read the passage for context. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 14. This is Charlie Brown Christmas. For those of you that don't know, uh, everyone's heard this before. That Well, probably. All right. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinus was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. Now, which was David's ancient home. So he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Listen, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born. So let me just pause here, because when we talk this Christmas about Jesus, we want to keep in our minds that when we talk about Jesus, the Son of God who was born into our world, that his name that people referred to him as was Jesus, but Messiah... Christ, Lord, Savior, Lion of Judah, all these other names, these are actually titles or descriptions of who Jesus was. 
People didn't go around calling Jesus, Jesus Christ to his face because, well, that would have been a title. Um, that would have been a description of who he was. They just called him Jesus or Yeshua probably in the language of the day. So all these things demonstrate who Jesus was. They are titles. They are descriptors of what Jesus would be. So the Savior, yes, the Messiah or Christ in, in Greek, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel is joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. We're going to look at very specifically at the pronouncement of the angels and look at this issue of the gift of peace that we experience as believers in Christ. Okay, two ideas real quickly, if you want to follow along in your handouts. Number one is this, is that God's glory is now revealed. God's glory is now revealed in our world. What happens is, is that when we look at the announcement of the angels, we want to kind of think about it this way. The angels come and they make the, the announcement, but there's reasons why they're making the announcement. They're not just making the announcement just generically, and there's some things that are in the text that we don't see in English that are really important for understanding this passage. First of all, let me just start by something that will put the men to sleep, but the women will get really excited about. When a child is born, what usually happens? Ladies, you create cards, you make announcements, you announce that the child is born, you care about things like the weight of the child, the hour the child is born, the, the size of the feet, whatever it may be. Us guys, when we get those announcements, we just toss it in the trash or we see it on Facebook or whatever, email, we just hit delete. The kid was born, great. It came out, it's done, good. But for the ladies, it's really important because the pronouncement has a lot to do with the birth of the child. And as Christians, the announcement here by the angels, by the, the armies of heaven, as the Bible sometimes referred to, by the, those people who live in heaven with God, his servants, when the announcement is made by them, it is great news for us, and it is an announcement for us that we are intended to take hold of. It's something that we should be excited about, and it's something that we should listen to. Because we've heard it a million times before, most of us are really jaded. And so when, when I say that, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God's favor rests because Christ is born, we all are like, oh yeah, we've heard that before, ho-hum, let's just go to Santana Row and buy gifts and be done so we're done with shopping for this year. And that's what our Christmas sort of refers to. But when we try to dig a little deeper into the text and understand the pronouncement of what's going on, we understand what God is trying to say here and the significance for us as well. So God's glory is now revealed because of what God has done. One of the things that's really hard for us to do, but is a very useful thought experiment, is to do this, is to sometime when you're doing your, your devotional, when you're at home praying, when you're at home reading the Bible, it's try to think what it was like to live before the time of Christ. Because today we all know baby Jesus this, baby Jesus that. We, we all know that. And it's sort of so much a part of our culture that we forget what it was like to live before the time of Christ and how much excitement would come, how much hysterical, just crazy, just I can't believe God is really going to do something right now, right here in our world, would have been experienced by the people living at that time. The heavens, by the way, are amazed at what God has done. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. There is something, let me, let me, let me explain it like this. How many of you speak another language? You don't have to raise your hand because I know most of you speak another language. A lot of us here speak more than one language. We speak two languages, or some of you speak like eight, and that's always amazing when I meet somebody like that, and mostly because of necessity. I can read and write, 
about seven if I'm pushed, but being able to speak it is a whole nother issue. And mine are ancient languages and doesn't really have any, you can't order a Slurpee in ancient language. So it doesn't really have much point today. I'm going to give you an option. The languages that you know in your brain, I'm going to get you to translate something, which is number one, translate, I want a Slurpee. Can everybody translate that into Tagalog, Mandarin, whatever? Pick Vietnamese, pick, pick your language, Spanish, pick your language. Okay, everybody got that? That's easy. Now, translate something like this. Roses are red, violets are blue. I don't do poetry well up front. How about you? Okay, <laughs> try to translate that. That's more difficult. Why is it more difficult to translate? Well, first of all, it may not rhyme in the other language. And also is that the humor may be lost in the other language as well. The point of what I'm trying to make is, is that when we, understand, when we look at the Bible and read the Bible, most of the Bible is not poetry. And the parts of the Bible to interpret that are non-poetry are easier to read in the original language. But this passage is poetic. And it's also poetic, not just based on the original language of the New Testament, but a, pre, a language that predates the New Testament, which is what the common language, Semitic language of the people of that day. So it's actually a very difficult passage to understand in its context. We're going to talk about that and what that means in just a few moments. But implicit in the text is this idea that the people of God who are in heaven are amazed at what God is doing. Implicit in this idea that we see in the original language is that the hosts of heaven are excited because they like get to see along with us what God is going to do. One of the things that we miss because we were born on this side, the right side, I think, the other side of the incarnation is that it does seem to be at times ho-hum for us. But there is implicit in this idea that even the angels, the people of God, no one really expected what God was going to do. Now, there, there's some valuable takeaway for this for us today because it's important for us to realize that a lot of times what God does, we don't really know how God's going to work it all out. Let me give an example. A lot of times, for those of you who've been in Sunday school and you've been in church for a while, you've heard the idea that the enemy of God, Satan, the enemy of God, doesn't really know the accuser of of his people, doesn't really know how God's going to work it all out. And in fact, if you look at Satan throughout the Bible, he changes a lot. He's not like God. He's like us. We change all the time. We change all the time. And, and so what happens is that Satan is the same way. He changes. And you notice at the beginning, he's sort of like clueless because he thinks he's going to beat God. And he thinks that he's going to actually do something that's going to be useful. Why is that? Because he doesn't really know how everything's going to work out. I would submit to you from this passage that the angels that the enemy, that us, that everyone doesn't really know how God's going to work everything out. In the Old Testament, people knew that God was going to send what? A Messiah. They were, God was going to send a Messiah. But who that Messiah was going to be, how that Messiah was going to come, what that Messiah was going to do, that was unknown to everyone but God. And so the angels, implicitly in the text here, is the idea that even the angels were so astounded and amazed because of what God had revealed to them of what they were going to do. I mean, think about it this way. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. We see Jesus in the Old Testament a lot, actually. He's actually in the Old Testament quite a bit. And so, you know, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God is active in the Old Testament. The, they know that the Messiah is going to come, but he's already, God's already accounted for. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, they're all throughout the Old Testament. 
So people know that they're already active in our world. So they know the Messiah is going to come, but people had no idea of how to reconcile the Messiah with what God was going to do. And so the heavens are amazed. The people that, that worship God in heaven, those that were created by him, they're amazed because God is going to do something spectacular here, and they can't believe that it's going to be to send his son himself, the second person of who he is, his own flesh and blood, to come to earth and be born as a baby. By the way, for the, the creator of the universe to humble himself and be born in the pitiful, frail body of a human child. Why do I say pitiful? Am I calling Jesus pitiful? No, just so we're clear. But what I'm saying is, is that the ba- a baby, a human baby, flesh and blood is pitiful compared to the glory of who God is. Pitiful. And so God is willing to do that to rescue us. He's willing to do that to set us right with him. So the heavens are amazed at what God has done. Now, here's the thing. Glory to God in the highest heaven. It's amazing because we can't understand what God has done, but he's doing it, and it's really awesome. This should be humbling to us because there are promises in the Bible that we know to be true. So when the Bible promises us that when we commit our lives to Christ and we follow him, that God will reward us with abundant life here on earth and everlasting life in heaven, that's a promise we can take to the bank. But when we try to explain how it's all going to work out, how the end times are going to work out, how heaven's going to be like, we can't do it. You know why? Because God hasn't given us that information. And just as people who tried to predict the Messiah before Christ, oh yeah, were there Messiahs before Jesus? Well, there were lots of predicted Messiahs before Jesus. There were lots of people that they held up, oh, this could be the Messiah. This, this rabbi, this leader could be the Messiah. But they weren't the Messiah. People always trying to predict things. And so it's impossible for us to predict what God is going to do. We trust by faith in his promises, but we leave the details of what God is going to do up to him. Why? Because when he works it out, it's always going to be to his glory, and it's always going to be the best for each of us. So the heavens are amazed at what God has done. Now, secondly, God has glorified himself with gifts for this world. So if you really want to try to translate this poetry into proper English, I know that this is the Charlie Brown one, so you can't mess with this too much in the Bible. But a better way of thinking about it would actually be, instead of saying glory to God in the highest heaven, is to put a there is in front of the text. There is glory to God in highest heaven. Because they're making a pronouncement and they're saying, listen, this is what's going on. There is glory to God in highest heaven. There is glory to him because of what he's done. God has glorified himself with gifts for the world. Now, do you guys want to be baby Christians or you want to be mature Christians? Baby or mature? What do you think? All right. For those of you who want to be baby, all right. Keep prodding you. Listen, why does God send Jesus into our world? What is the primary reason that God sends Jesus into our world? What is the primary reason God sends Jesus as the Messiah into our world? That is the baby Christian answer. But good answer. It's true. It's true. But that's the baby Christian answer. The mature Christian answer is that God brings Jesus into the world to save us for what reason? To glorify himself. That is the number one reason, to bring glory to God. Notice that the pronouncement doesn't say that there is salvation for you because Jesus has been born. It's not what they say. The angels are excited because it brings glory to God above all else. 
That's the mature Christian answer. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Because I, I, I challenged you. I said, you have a weak faith. You are a lukewarm Christian if you are a Christian because of what you get out of it. That is the definition of a lukewarm Christian. By the way, that's the definition of lukewarm everything. If you're in your marriage because of what you get out of it, then it's lukewarm. I knew a guy in college. He was crazy. And he said that he wanted to have like, he was going to adopt 20 kids when he got older because he was going to make them be his servants. I mean, he was like really crazy, crazy. Yeah, right. Like that's, gonna, that, that's ever going to happen. But the thing is, that would be what? That would be having kids for what they bring to you, not for what you can do for them. And, and so what happens is, is that God brings Jesus into the world primarily, number one, most important reason is to glorify himself. Why is it to glorify himself? Well, let me use an analogy I'm going to use throughout the message here this morning. Let's use an astronomical analogy. One of the things that we know about life here on our planet is that we are on Earth and we are on a planet that revolves around the sun. There are other planets that revolve around the sun, other bodies, moons, and other type of astral bodies, I guess you would say. And when we look at the sun, we see the sun and the sun is kind of the source of everything. By the way, the moon, we see the moon because the moon has light? No, because the moon reflects the light of the sun, right? And so everything in our universe, every, well, everything in our solar system goes back to the sun. The source of our light is the sun. The source of our life is the sun. The source of our food and existence is the sun. The source of light from the moon is the sun. The source of being able to see anything is the sun. Maybe the source of global warming is the sun. I don't know. But there's lots of things that is the source of the sun. And everything leans towards the sun because without the sun, there is no existence. There is no sustaining of life. And it's the same way with God. Of course, it's not a perfect analogy. But when we look to God, God is the one to whom all glory is given. He is the one who creates the world and sustains the world. The angels have no glory. You know why? Because the angels are like the moon. The moon has no light. The moon can only reflect the light of the sun. The angels can only reflect the glory of God. And for us in our lives, by us becoming believers in Christ, by us being saved, in the old-fashioned way of saying it, we are doing what? We are reflecting the glory of God because our lives are are becoming right with him. So God has glorified himself with his gifts to the world. So when we talk about peace, when we talk about the other gifts that God brings, those gifts primarily glorify him. They are things that make him be glorious. Now, why would we glorify God? Well, again, there is nothing greater, nothing better, nothing bigger in our whole world than God. And so that is the reason why we glorify him. The angels here are saying glory to God in highest heaven. There is glory to God. We are excited because the sinning, the coming of the Messiah is glory to him. God has glorified himself with his gifts for the world. Now, second idea here real quickly this morning as we move on is that God's gift is peace to his people. The first gift we're going to talk about in this series is this issue of peace. Hey, have you guys seen the building downtown? And I'm sure this is true of every city, but there's a building downtown in San Jose where they have peace on earth across the top of the building. Have you all seen that? I think it's lit and everything. Um, like I said, it's, they have them in all cities. And that's awesome. We're all for peace. But let's talk about what the Bible here means by peace and what this gift is that the angels are celebrating. The angels are announcing, they're pronouncing that there is glory to God in highest heaven because his son has come on the scene, uh, on the scene and also peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now, here's the problem with poetry. Here's the problem with poetry. The problem with poetry is it's hard to interpret. It's hard to understand. It's hard to go from one language to another. 
One of the things that happens in our world is that we misunderstand this passage because it's poetic and because the guys that did the King James, they missed the boat on the translation. When you look at the King James, it's broken down into three passages. Let me see if I can remember. It's sort of like glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men. And no, what is it? Glory to God. Um, I've got it in first. Glory to God in highest heaven, peace on earth, and then goodwill to men. Something, something along those lines. And it breaks it down into a triplet, into three different lines. The problem is by doing that is that it gives us the impression that peace on earth has its own separate category, but it really doesn't. Actually, this is just a doublet. It's just two lines. Now, for those of you that are totally uninterested in lines and poetry and that sort of thing, I know Shane loves poetry. Some of you guys, Gabe loves poetry. You guys sit around and do poetry. That's cool. I'm cool with that. But what happens is, is that when we talk about this, it's really important because if we put the emphasis in the wrong place, we miss the point of the passage. God's gift is peace to his people. There's two lines here. By the way, the reason why it got messed up, for those of you interested and love the King James, not knocking against the King James, is just the fact that they didn't have the benefit of archaeology. They didn't understand that it was not a Greek expression, but a Semitic expression they were trying to translate. So God's gift is to his uh, peace is to his people. This peace is the harmony of reconciled relationship. What is the peace that it's talking about here? Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. The idea here in the original language comes from this an astronomical idea originally. What happens when you have an eclipse? Anybody know? Can you have an eclipse today? Oh, what do you say? Yeah, well, it goes dark, that's true. But when you have an eclipse, you have an eclipse because what? Because the sun and the moon and the earth are what? Online, right, very good. Okay, and so the original idea for this in this language comes from the idea of an alignment, that those things are aligned. So what happens is, is that the peace that God is talking about here is the alignment of our lives with God. That when we embrace his Savior, when we embrace his Messiah, that we are granted peace because our lives become aligned with him. It's not necessarily a promise that there's not going to be violence or war or conflict in our world, but it's the fact that we are going to be aligned. Another good example is, for those of you that are handymen and you do construction or you do anything with your hands, uh, if you've ever had to put a board together, like two two-by-fours together, right? What do you do? If you need to put two by two two-by-fours together and you need them at a right angle, do you just throw the two two-by-fours together, put a couple nails in it, and you're done? It's kind of like this. What do you actually do? If you want to do it the right way, what's the right way of doing it? You get a, what do you call it, a square or a T-square. What is that thing called? You know the thing? What is it? What, a miter? Well, you can do it with a miter, it's true. Why is, no offense, but why is a lady answer this? What's up with you men? What's up with you men? Come on, first service, none of the guys answered either. What is up? That's sad. That is, that's really sad. I'm sorry, Shirley, but that's sad. No, I mean, kudos to her, but man, that's sad. So guys, one-on-one here. I may be wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. You want this to be a perfect square, right? Otherwise, if it's off by a few degrees, it throws everything off. How do you do it? You have to align it. You have to measure it. You have to make it right. I mean, it's, it's either right or it's wrong. It's either 90 degrees or it's 98 degrees, which is pretty much useless. So what happens is, is that when we commit our lives to God, when, when, when God comes as the Messiah into the world, when his son comes as the Messiah into the world, when he does that, what happens is, is that our lives become reconciled to him. And instead of our lives being whatever, it becomes square. Listen, when Adam and Eve decided to sin against God in the garden, what did it bring about? It brought about them rebelling against God, rejecting God, disassociating themselves from God. 
So the announcement of the Son is critical because the announcement of the Son allows us the opportunity to do what with God? To no longer rebel against God, to no longer be rejected, to no longer reject Him. We're the rejectors, He's the rejectee. To no longer reject God, but to be right with God. When it talks about peace, the primary idea here is that we can be reconciled with God, that we are able to be forgiven, that we are able to be set right with him. Even this idea of set right, you know, you put a board like this, like this, like this, it's not right. When you put it like this, 90 degrees, and you measure it, and it's right, it is right. Peace is the harmony of reconciled relationship with God. Why is this important? Why, why do we harp on it? Wouldn't the other peace be better? Well, The problem is the other piece doesn't bring about anything long-lasting. We live in a broken and sinful world, and no matter what time we live in, there's always going to be war, there's always going to be fighting, there's always going to be conflict, there's always going to be strife, there's always going to be problems. The promise of Scripture is that we would be reconciled with God. In the Old Testament period, in the time of Moses, how were people made right with God? Did they have to go to temple and make sacrifices? Did that make them right with God? No. Right, it did not. What made people right with God in the Old Testament time? Faith. Faith is what did it. More specifically, God's grace poured out on his people that they accept by faith. Faith is what it is. Even the Israelites, we talked about two weeks ago, right? When they got ready to cross the Red Sea, they said what after they crossed? They put their, not ritual, not religion, they put their faith in God and his servant Moses. And so what happens is faith is the key that unlocks everything. When we have faith in God, and that's that's not, you know, token, um, I get something out of it faith, but when we have real committed faith to God in Christ, we're excited because what happens is, is our, recon- our relationship with God is now reconciled. We're not rebelling against him. We're at peace with God. We're no longer at war with him. Why is being at peace with God better than any other peace possible? Well, because when you're aligned correctly with the creator and sustainer of the universe, everything else works better. Look, if you want to, I'm going to use another astronomical example. And again, I'm not a sailor, so you'll have to take this example for what it's worth. But there are lots of stars in the skies. But from what I understand, from my experience, limited with sailing and that sort of thing, if you want to try to figure out where you're at, you got to start with the North Star and then work backwards from there. You can't just, say, pick Jupiter as the star by which you're going to set your charts and try to find your way home. Why? Well, it moves, for one thing. So you're not going to be very successful that way. Why would we set our star? Why would we set our sights? Why would we set our goal on anything else that moves? God is the one thing in the universe that does not move. He is the sun. He is the center of the universe. He is the center of our lives. When we reconcile with him, when we're square with him, when we're right with him, it sets everything else right in our lives. Everything else falls from that. Let me just ask you a question. Would you rather be at peace with your... Would you rather be at peace because you have all the presents you need to shop for this Christmas, or would you rather be at peace with God? Obviously, we can say the Sunday school church answer because you're listening, I'm listening, and say peace with God, right? But the truth is, is that from a very logical position, it makes much more sense to be at peace with God than it does at peace with anything else. Now, Last idea real quickly as we finish up here this morning. The gift of peace is specific to God's people. Here's the thing. The reason why King James and Charlie Brown get a little bit wrong because they misunderstand the point of the poetry. And peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This to whom God is pleased, they didn't know how to translate because they only had the Greek text coming back to them, sort of the, the one, just a, one version. They didn't have the benefit of archaeology. They didn't realize when they did this in the 17th century that 
when they did the King James in the 17th century, they didn't realize that they were trying to translate an idiom that was originally Aramaic. So here's the thing. Let me talk about idioms so you get the point. In English, English is a terrible language to learn. Can I get an amen on that? Terribly difficult language to learn. For those of you that like English, uh, happy for you. I like English too because it's my native language. But um, English is terribly difficult to learn. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who try to learn it. One of the reasons why English is terribly difficult is because it's idiomatic. So instead of in English when we greet people saying, hi, I am well. Are you well? Or some other weird Star Trek kind of you know, thing, right? What do we say? We say, hey, what's up? But of course, that doesn't make any sense. Th- those words together, they don't, they don't make any sense whatsoever. They're, they're dumb. They don't, I mean, they don't make any sense at all. It's terrible. Well, it's, yeah, it is improper English, but English is by nature largely an idiomatic language, and there's no getting around it. It's always been largely idiomatic. So what happens is, is that when they are talking about peace here, they're using a Semitic idiom, which means this, and peace on earth to the chosen people of God. That's what it means in the original of the original, to the original idea there, to the chosen people of God. Well, what is the peace guarantee? What is the gift? The gift is that the people who are chosen by God, the chosen people of God, are those who have commitment and relationship with him. They are the ones who will experience peace in our world. When they put peace on earth on the building over here in San Jose, and we say at Christmas, peace on earth, right? But that's not a promise in the Bible. There's no promise that there's not going to be war or violence or conflict. The promise is for the people of God who are chosen by him, the people of God who are his chosen people, that we experience correct alignment, we experience harmony, we experience great relationship with God. When that relationship works, it spills over into every other part of our lives. I cannot do this with the Cowboys this year because, man, they stink. But, and I can't do it with the Raiders or the uh, 49ers, I don't think, either. So I'll pick the Seahawks or somebody. Let's say the Seahawks end up like 8-8 eight and eight at the end of the season. So at 8-8, eight and eight, they're probably not going to make the playoffs. But what do players, what do fans really more even so, what do fans and players, Seahawks players, if they're 8-8 eight and eight at the end of the season, what do they start praying for? Does anybody know? They can't win any more games and they might have a chance to play us, what do they start playing, praying for? The other people will start losing. That's what happens. Or when you're eight and seven, you start praying that other teams will start losing. Because the only way for you to get in is for you to keep winning, but you have to have the division and conference teams lose. Here's the thing. Do you think that every time you glorify God it has a spillover effect in our world? Or are they isolated incidents? You know, uh, back in 1885 when Rex was in ministry, like as a senior pastor, um, they used to have a saying that, you know, the angels of heaven jump up and down and praise God every time a sinner becomes a saint. And we don't use that expression as much anymore today. But is that true? Is that true? Well, it is. Because all of this that God is doing brings glory to him. When somebody, well, let me just use a specific example. When we spent our, when we spent our useless plastic bottles and collected them three months ago and sent the money to Nicaragua so that they could pay for a guy to come down and do a revival in a village that doesn't have a church and 14 people became believers, does that have any a direct effect on us? 
Yes, it does. You know why? Because number one, it brings glory to God. And we were a part of bringing glory to God. But number two, it establishes more peace on earth. Why? Because it doesn't stop war or violence. Those are not the promises of God. But the more people who commit their lives to God, the more peace comes in because the more able we are to be right with God and therefore the more able we are more likely to work together and the more we are able to get along with our family, our friends, and that sort of thing. So what happens is it is related. It is not direct, but it is interrelated. The gift of peace is specific to God's people. The promise here for those of us who have relationship with God is that we will experience peace. And the more peace, well, the better relationship we have with God, that's the better way to say it. The better relationship we have with God, the more peace we will experience and the more peace people around us will experience and the more peace that our world will experience because it is God being glorified through us. But it starts with us. It's always been... It's always been about his chosen people. It's always been about reaching his chosen people. It's always been about the favor and grace that he has for his chosen people. How do you be a chosen people of God? Well, don't let the English confuse you because anybody who wants to be a chosen person of God can. You just have to say, God, I want you to choose me and God will choose you. That's the way that chosen people kind of thing works. But the gift of God is specific to God's people. So just as a conclusion here this morning, something to think about. Go home when you have your devotional, when you have your, your private uh, 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 Bible study, whatever it may be, and think about the fact that people 2,000 years ago, they didn't know what God was going to do. They, they knew God was going to send a Messiah, but they didn't understand how the Messiah was going to come. They didn't imagine that it was going to be Jesus in the sense that we understand Jesus. They trusted in God, and God rewarded them because he was able to bring about salvation in their life, looking forward to what Christ would do. We take Christ ho-hum because we look backwards on Christ, and we see the baby, and we see Jesus, and we see the movies, and we see the Christmas trees, and we see all this stuff, and we forget about the fact that the reason why the angels were so excited, and the reason why the angels were saying, look, there's glory to God, we're so excited, there's glory to God because of what he's done, is because there's a new thing, and the new thing is, is that God has finally brought about the mechanism, the reconciliation that we've all been looking forward to. Every single one of us have the opportunity to be reconciled with God, to be right with God. Our lives don't have to be screwy. They don't have to be 86 degrees or 94 degrees. They can be square. They can be straight. They can be right with God. They can be right with people around us. But it requires what? Does it require us to focus on those broken relationships first? No. It requires us to focus on God first. That when we make God the center of our lives and as the sun, the eclipse, the moon, when we have that alignment, that rightness with God, we are at peace with him and that brings about peace and abundance in our lives and brings about peace and abundance with other peoples as well. So here's the thing. If we are chosen of God, we rejoice because of what God has done. So let us rejoice this Christmas season at that and make sure our lives are peacefully aligned with God and his plan for us. Let's pray.